Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, will be 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 through 14. We will be looking back at some earlier parts of the letter in the course of the sermon, so I'd ask you to have your Bibles open to that passage if you have one available where you are this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 to 14. As you know by now, it's Trinity Sunday. We've heard together a number of biblical texts already in this service pertaining to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've sung praises explicitly to the God who is three in one, and we've listened carefully to the Athanasian Creed explain some nuances of Trinitarian theology. But I've opted now for my sermon to focus our attention on this conclusion of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And I've done that because above all this morning, what I want us to grasp is that the nature of God as triune isn't just a doctrinal abstraction for us to puzzle over. Not that the intricacies of Trinitarian theology are not important, they certainly are, as the Athanasian Creed itself has reminded us. But for the Apostle, writing to the Corinthians, and therefore for me speaking to you this morning, I might argue that more important than the doctrinal nuances was the actual presence of the triune God in the lives of the people in Corinth. It won't surprise those of you who've been around Christ the King for a while to hear that this is Paul's great final emphasis in the letter to second, of 2 second Corinthians. As we saw when we studied the letter to the Galatians some time ago, Paul's whole theology is driven by the reality of the presence of the living God. It is no longer I who live, the apostle wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Similarly, this morning, we see that when everything is said and done, at the end of his brilliant and often rather stormy letter to the Corinthians, Paul's final desire is that the triune God himself would be with them. Paul offers his final benediction in verse 14 of chapter 13. It is the only benediction in Paul's letters that is Trinitarian in structure. The words are very familiar. We've said them at the end of every morning prayer service since mid-March. Paul concludes 2 Corinthians with his most important wish for them in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This morning, having read some of the larger context of the ending of 2 Corinthians, 
Perhaps we're now in a position then to ask the question, why is that Paul's greatest wish for the Corinthians? Why end this remarkable letter in such a way? What was it that Paul understood that the presence of the triune God in the lives of the Corinthians would mean? In other words, if Paul's final wish for them were to be granted, and really it is a prayer, not just a wish, if his prayer is granted in their lives and in our lives today, what would be the result? That's really the line of thought for my sermon this morning. What did Paul think the grace and the love and the fellowship of the triune God would accomplish in the lives of the Corinthians? Having heard the text from chapter 13 read a bit ago, the answer perhaps now will seem obvious. I think Paul knew that if his final benediction was realized, the result would be that all the Corinthians would meet the test. That's where our reading started this morning in verse 5. Look there, chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves, Paul says, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? Now, as I read Paul here, and in light of the whole of 2 Corinthians, there's only one way that they're all going to meet the test. And that will be only if and because the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is in fact with them all. As I read it, that closing benediction is Paul's prayer that the blessings of the new covenant will be realized in their lives. So now to try to bring these, these things I've introduced together in our hearts and minds this morning, we'll proceed in the rest of the sermon by organizing our thoughts under two question headings. Question one will be, what is the test? that the Corinthians must meet in verse 5. And to answer that, we'll be looking back into 2 Corinthians a bit. And then we'll have to more briefly address question 2. Having said what the test is, we'll then ask question 2, how is it that Paul thinks they'll meet that test? What's the test and how do they meet the test? are the two questions in, I think, a simple enough structure for us this morning. But as we go, of course, I hope what you'll recognize is that we're not just talking here about the Corinthians. We're talking about ourselves. We're talking about what the triune God that we focus on in today's service is up to, what he's up to in our lives just as Paul knew and prayed he would be in the lives of the Corinthian church. So let me begin with question one. What is the test that the Corinthians must meet in verse five? Now, the only way to answer that, I think, is for us to look back into the context 
of chapters 12 and 13 that comes right before the start of where Jerry began the reading this morning. Now, I'm not going to go into all the background of the Corinthian context or try to summarize all of 2 Corinthians here. I know that that means some of what I'll say may seem a bit fuzzier than it would be if we had arrived together at this point after a series of expositions in 1 and 2 Corinthians, but I think we can catch enough just by looking back to chapter 12 a bit. So if you have your Bibles there, look back to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, where Paul begins to make mention of the fact that he intends to come to the Corinthians a third time. You see that in chapter 12, verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14, here for the for the third time, I am ready to come to you, Paul writes. And when he comes, Paul assures them he isn't going to be a burden by asking them to support him. For, the apostle explains in the middle of verse 14 there, I seek not what is yours. I don't want your money. I seek you, he says. In other words, Paul desires their welfare. His ministry, including this upcoming third visit, is aimed at solidifying their faith. Now, near the beginning of the entire letter, in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul said that explicitly. This is chapter 1, verse 24. He says, we work with you for your joy, he says, for you stand firm in your faith. The Corinthians are not Paul's patron. Rather, Paul is their father in the faith. He founded the Corinthian church. His preaching is what gave birth to the Corinthian, uh, to the Christian community in Corinth. And so, in chapter 12, verse 19, if you'd look there, Paul summarizes his entire purpose by saying, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Only then we learn, though we would have known it already had we been working through 2 Corinthians up to this point, we then learn that not all in the Corinthian church had responded to what Paul had been saying in the way Paul hoped. Though Paul had been speaking in Christ for their upbuilding, there were some who, in fact, came to reject Paul's ministry and the message he proclaimed. And Paul understood that should that rejection continue, it would bring serious consequences. In short, the apostle knew he would come this third time and excommunicate those who had not repented from the Corinthian church. Now, let me fill this in a little more. If you want to look back, you can at chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. You don't have to all read it. But in chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, Paul had explained what his apostolic calling entailed. Listen as I read the text. Therefore, Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. And then here comes the core of Paul's message. This is chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That was the core of Paul's apostolic ministry. And in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul would write of the joy he had upon learning from Titus that, in fact, the majority of the Corinthians had repented. In response to another letter, Paul had written them. Not 1 Corinthians, but another letter that we don't have between 1 and 2 Corinthians. I rejoice, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. The repentance of many of those in Corinth had brought great joy to Paul. But this had not been the case for all of them. Not yet, anyway. Some of the Corinthians had continued to reject Paul's gospel for a different one. And their acceptance of this other message had led to their continued lives of sinful rebellion. Some in the church were in fact unwilling to repent from the kind of sexual immorality that had been a problem in Corinth from the beginning. And their persistence in their sinful ways had led to a deep division within the body of Christ. You can look back now to chapter 12, where we were a moment ago, picking it up in verses 20 and 21. Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, this third time, I may find you not as I wish, Paul says, and that you may find me not as you wish. In other words, Paul isn't going to allow this rebellion to continue any longer. Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. The sorrow that Paul felt over their rejection during his second painful visit to Corinth will then, be, on this third visit, be matched by the mourning and the sorrow he will feel over their upcoming judgment. Paul knows that should they not repent, he will be forced finally to judge them. There is no glee in the apostles' contemplation of that possibility. To be forced finally to judge the rebellious Corinthians when Paul's primary message is their salvation and faith and joy would be yet another humbling experience for Paul. That's what he's talking about at the end of chapter 12. Nevertheless, Paul is clear-eyed as to the necessity of it if things don't change. God's judgment must come against the unrepentant. And when Paul arrives this third time, he warns them, he'll make his case against them. 
Witnesses will be called from within the congregation itself, and those found guilty will be punished. Chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. We know from earlier in the letter of 2 Corinthians that the rebellious Corinthians were seeking expressions of Christ's power in their midst, and they felt that Paul was quite lacking in that area. But now Paul warns them that power will come, but it will come in judgment. That's the point of chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. Just as the crucified, weak Jesus gives way to the resurrected Christ, who lives by God's power and will come again in judgment, so too the suffering Paul, uh, the suffering that was so readily dismissed in Paul by the rebellious Corinthians will give way to a Paul who lives to return to Corinth in judgment. Only this sure wasn't how Paul wanted things to be. We've already seen how Paul's primary purpose as an apostle was to mediate new creation through the knowledge of the cross and the transforming power of the life-giving Holy Spirit. That's the power Paul seeks to be realized in the church. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what Paul most wants for the Corinthians. Because what is it that happens in the lives of those who are reconciled? In the lives of those who have trusted in the cross, who have become new creation by the presence of the Holy Spirit? You know the answer. Paul famously says it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul knew their whole lives would change when the new covenant reality that he ministered took root in their hearts. This is where Paul goes with them in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. He says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, says the apostle of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's the new covenant reality Paul longs to see take root in the lives of all the Corinthians. It's the reality I long to see take root in our lives today as well. 
But now Paul realizes that as an agent of God's salvation, he must also be an agent of God's judgment because just as those who reject the cross of Christ will one day see Christ in his resurrected glory, should these Corinthians not come to be reconciled as Paul has urged them, should they continue to reject the apostle and his gospel, they will face him instead in judgment. And that time is coming soon, Paul tells the Corinthians. So, chapter 13, verse 5 Examine yourselves, he says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Now, I hope that this makes more sense now. I hope so, because the sermon's well past half over at this point. What's the test? Do you get it? They have to repent. They have to accept Paul's message of reconciliation. Because Paul's is actually God's message of reconciliation. It's centered on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. It is the only way that can become, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, what Paul still holds out hope they actually are, new creation. Think about the middle of verse 5 there. Why does Paul say, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Why does Paul give them the benefit of the doubt? Well, he does it because at one point in the past, they did respond positively to Paul and his message. They did once believe Paul's gospel before others had come on the scene in Corinth to lead them astray from the apostle, if you know the full story in the backdrop here. But if that's the case, if Christ is in them, what will be the result in their lives? Well, it'll be the same as what we saw earlier from Galatians 2, verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see? If Christ is indeed in them by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the rebellious Corinthians will not continue in unrepentant sin. Do you not realize, the apostle says, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? The Corinthians must confirm the reality of their conversion. Paul's call for them to repent is providing them one last chance because what Paul understands is that those in whom Christ is present will not continue in lifestyles of persistent sin. To encounter the glory of God on the face of Christ is to be transformed by it, Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 18. 
A growing transformation into the image of God marks the lives of those on whom God has put his seal by pouring out the Holy Spirit into their hearts. It's the new covenant as a reality in their lives that Paul seeks. And by now you're tired of me talking about it, I'm sure. But what else can I do? It's everywhere. To continue in lives of disobedience is to fail the test of Christ's presence. We find that taught in the Gospels. We've found it taught in Hebrews. It's in the Apostle John's writings. 1 John 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. What's the implication? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, John says. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Paul takes no pleasure in coming to judge the Corinthians. That's why he's writing these things, he says in verse 10 of our passage. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. The last part of verse 10 is an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 6. Paul is simply saying that his desire is that he won't be forced to exercise his authority harshly when he comes again to Corinth for in fulfillment of Jeremiah's promise that one day God will build his people. Paul knows his ministry under the new covenant is to do that rather than to predominantly tear down the people of God. And so, if all of that's right, if that's what the test is all about in verse 5, then as we come to the end of our time this morning, we're left to answer my second question very rapidly. How does Paul think they'll meet the test? How do you and I meet the test? And I put the question that way because I do think Paul expects them to meet it. He calls them brothers and sisters in verse 11 of our passage. The benediction he pronounces in verse 14 at the very end, the final word of 2 Corinthians, it's for them all, including those who have yet to repent of their sinful practices. Because I think Paul simply assumes he knows that those whom he calls brothers and sisters, they will respond to his commands if they are part of the family of God. Paul fully expects those who are spiritual to grow into maturity. What other reason could there be for the series of commands that Paul gives them in verse 11 of our passage? Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. To do any of those things will require the repentance and restoration that Paul has longed for all through this letter. 
The joy and restoration Paul talks about there are connected to them passing the test. The end of verse 9, your restoration is what we pray for, he says. That's what will cause rejoicing for Paul and for them. They'll only be able to do all that the apostle commands them in verse 11 if they do what he commanded them in verse 5, to examine themselves to test themselves. They must test themselves. They must repent. But Paul doesn't think that they'll meet the test simply because they somehow managed to get their act together, finally. That they somehow managed to meet his demands out of their own spiritual or moral resources. No. Paul doesn't think that the Corinthians will meet this test because he has faith in the Corinthians. Paul thinks they'll meet the test because Paul has faith in God. Please don't let it escape your notice on this Trinity Sunday that Paul ends his pleas in 2 Corinthians with prayers for the triune God to act in the lives of his Corinthian people. Did you hear that emphasis when Jerry read the text earlier? It's there in verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, that you may do what is right. It's there in verse 9. Your restoration, Corinthians, is what we pray for. And of course, it is the entire setting of verses 11 to 14. Paul's final Trinitarian benediction must be understood as a deeply pastoral prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul pours out his life for the Corinthians. But at the same time, he prays that God will keep them from doing wrong, that God will restore them, that God will grant them the benefits of his presence. Because in the end, the apostle knows that only God himself can bring about the repentance and the obedient faith that he calls for in their lives. Paul knows that it's only God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who can enable the Corinthians to pass the test. And so, dear friends, this Trinity Sunday, even as we affirm the mysterious, marvelous doctrine of the triune God, perhaps we should finally ask ourselves, is the power of the triune God's presence a theological doctrine we affirm? Or is it a theological reality in our lives? Paul knows there's real sin to be dealt with in the Corinthian church. In his final benediction, Paul offers them the promise of real redemption. He does so not only because it's what he wants to be the experience of the Corinthians, but because he knows it's what must happen. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, is Paul's closing prayer for the blessing of the new covenant itself. 
in which the grace of Christ has made it possible for them and for us to experience the love of God now poured out in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May Paul's final Trinitarian benediction be fulfilled in our lives in Christ the King as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.